0: Four of them, they're like this big and they're full of notes and newspaper clippings and internet articles all about ancestors and she's, she's very thorough when it comes to her hobby of ancestry, I'm kidding, it's really cool I get a kick out of it um, it's fun to watch people when, some, when they're around her and they mention a family member and you can start to see, see the, the wheels are turning you can see it in her eyes She wants to find out more about that family member. She'll she'll tell you about your great-grandfather, where he came from, which, any town, city in USA, where he's from, what his favorite color is, and the name of his favorite dog. She can figure all that stuff out just by doing some searching. We've found some very interesting stuff about our family. I had um, a grandfather or uncle who got, he got arrested for stealing chickens from somebody from a chicken coop back in the early 1900s I didn't know about. Just goofy stuff like that. But there is an obsession with understanding genealogies and ancestry. Everybody wants to know where they came from. Over 30 million people globally have set out for their DNA test to try to find out what their heritage is. And I got to tell you, as a mailman, that is a disgusting process. I do not like, I cringe every time I have to pick up this little tiny box. Now, all it has in it is a swab from inside your mouth. That's what I've been told by certain people. But that's still really gross. I don't want your DNA in my truck. And I definitely don't want to hold it in my hand. But anyway, I digress. They want to to know, but this is not a new phenomenon. Humanity's been recording genealogy since the beginning of time. In Genesis chapter 5, you find the very first recorded genealogy. We find out that everybody here is from Adam and Eve. Did you know that? Denny, you're my brother. Lisa, you're my sister for real. It's just really far out. I don't know how far, but it's probably pretty far, you goofball. Sorry, I couldn't help it. had to put you on the spot. But we're all from Adam and Eve. But then, of course, sin comes into the world. They messed it up. Thanks for eating the fruit. And a global flood happens. I mentioned that. We just studied that in Genesis a week ago. And all that's left are Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. So guess what? We all come from Noah or one of his three sons, or one of the three sons of Noah. So guess what? We, we might look different. We might um, speak differently. We have different accents, things like that. But guess what? We're all cut, literally, from the same cloth. Now, don't write me letters. Don't email me. Don't sue me. That's what this says. So deal with it. Sorry. It's just the way it is. We all come from the same lineage. The people of Israel took their lineage very, very seriously. After Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God promised Eve that a descendant from her line, her seed, would become the promised Messiah and would save the world from the penalty of sin. But over the course of time, Satan has done all he could possibly do to hinder and ruined that plan he tried it right away with Adam and Eve's first two sons he tempted Cain because of Cain's bad offering and he killed his brother Abel so right away we have murder in the very second generation of people here on the earth and that's what Satan's been doing since the beginning of his this time he's been trying to lead us apart from God He's tempted people in every possible way. He uses the pride of life to coerce men and women into destroying their relationships with God. When Moses was a baby, the pharaoh of Egypt ordered all Hebrew boys to be killed so they wouldn't grow up and overtake his throne. King Herod had all the little boys aged two and under killed at the time Jesus was born to save his own throne. Satan's been trying to kill that seed of promise that's to come from Eve ever since they ate that fruit and God pronounced that judgment on the evil serpent that we call Satan. When God called Abram, God promised Abram that he would be the father of many nations. He changed his name to Abraham and in his old age he fathered a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob And he wrestled with God, and God changed his name to Israel. Israel had 12 sons. It's those 12 sons that represent the chosen people of Israel that were to be set apart as light of the coming Messiah who would save the world from sin. The Jews, who were the legitimate biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Israel had good reason to believe that they were in right standing with God. They had the right stuff, as some might say today about those who come from famous lines. And that last little thing was from my wife, just for anybody that's seen the video from our wedding. (laughs) Jesus came on the scene, quickly drew the attention of those religious elites, those people that thought they had it all together. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were not only cut from the right cloth, so to speak, but they were the ones who seemingly best kept the Mosaic law. They had the correct genealogy, and they were the most law-abiding citizens of that time. They were considered to be the best of the best. Jesus began working miracles and making some very bold claims along the way. And this got those religious elites all riled up. In John 8, we find Jesus in Jerusalem during the time of the festival of the tabernacles. Tabernacles, excuse me. During this festival, Jews from all over the world would travel to Jerusalem... And they would spend a week sleeping in tents. Anybody like going camping? Oh, man, that was weak. That was not a good response. I got one. Yay. That's what they did all week long. That's probably pretty nasty. Probably stunk a little bit there in Jerusalem, in the city, just saying. But there were just tons of people. And that's what they would do. They would gather. And every night during that festival, the women would go into the court of the women in front of the temple. And they would light candles. They would take those candles all throughout the city so that other people could light their candles. And that was part of the celebration of the festival of the Tabernacles. Tabernacles, I can't say that word for some reason today. Keep in mind there's no electricity back in the first century. And if you've ever been camping out in the country, you understand what it's like when it gets dark out. You can't see anything. If you've ever been to Seneca Lake where we've been many times, you go out there and you're out in, the, out in the wilderness where we camp at, you can't see a thing. The only thing that's lighting the sky is the stars. That's all you can see. When the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, God would light the camp at night by illuminating a pillar of fire above them. So these candles that these women went and made sure that everyone had lit represented that very pillar of fire that was there in the forty years of wilderness wandering. In in John eight twelve, Jesus utters one of seven I am statements found in John's gospel. These I am statements are descriptive of Jesus' character. But as we'll, we will see throughout this message, they mean as much or more as it pertains to his identity. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you all seven of those statements, because we're only going to actually see one in our passage for today, but I want to give you all seven of them. They're on your outline. The reason I'm giving them to you is I want you to try to memorize them. Most of them are very short, because if you memorize them, you are putting in your heart who Jesus is, how he carries himself, what type of person he is, and that matters, ...for our walk with God. So I'm going to give you all seven of them right away. The first one's found in John 6. He says, I am the bread of life. He brings all sustenance. The second one we find is in... Give it to me, Caleb. Help me out. It says, I am the light of the world here in John 8. All right? He's going to... And I'm going to tell you what that light of the world means. There's a reason why he took that particular thing... ...and said, I am the light of the world... And it's not just to do with the wilderness wandering. It's much bigger than that. The third one we find in John 10. He is the gate or the door for the sheep, depending on your translation. He is the opening to God. The next one, he is the good shepherd. He shepherds us. He makes sure that we're safe. He leads us beside still waters. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of of death. The next one you find is that he is the resurrection and the life we find that in John 11 he says that when he raises Lazarus from the dead the next one that you find is I am the way the truth and the life in John 14 no one comes to the Father except through me Jesus is that opening he's the only way to God and the seventh one he says I am the true vine he is the source of life now We're only going to look at I am the light of the world today. I could spend seven weeks doing each one of these I am statements, but we don't have time for that, and Greg wouldn't let me up here that much. (laughs) All right, so in sharp contrast to the commemoration of the lights all around the city, Jesus claims to be that very pillar of light that lit the camp in the wilderness. So the Pharisees quickly challenge him about appearing as his own witness. And we find that in John 8, verses 12 through 30. I'm not going to read all those verses because we need to focus on the rest of the passage. But for testimony to be considered valid in the Mosaic law, it had to be accompanied by two or more witnesses. Jesus clarifies that his testimony is, not, is enough. But to prove his testimony, he appeals to the fact That the father testifies on his behalf. In John 5. These same Pharisees challenged Jesus. About testimonies concerning his identity. He told them plainly. That he had four legitimate testimonies. That confirmed his identity. The first was himself. The next one was John the Baptist. The miracles or works that he he did. While he was here on the earth. And ultimately the father was his fourth testimony but the Pharisees continued to press Jesus they asked where his father was that's what I'm talking about the sheep gate I heard it I heard it alright this, this made their ears perk up when he said that they didn't know him or their father they, were, they woke up but at that time no one seized him does anybody know why they didn't seize him at that time Because it wasn't yet his time. Very important. There's a reason why Jesus made all these claims. He did all these things. And no one grabbed him and, and arrested him. There was a certain time when he had to get to the cross. And that's very important as well. There was a reason why he blinded the eyes of the people that he did while he did. It was so that he would be at the cross at the time that was prophesied to be there. So it's very important to note. Jesus... By saying that he didn't, they didn't know him or his father, he challenged their identity. He says in verse 23, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Now this ticked the Pharisees off. They did not want to hear anything about dying in their own sins. And they definitely didn't want to hear that they weren't God's children. They asked him, who are you? And Jesus, in his own little way, that I, could, I just wish I could be a fly on the wall seeing Jesus talk to these guys. He pretty much looked at him and said, duh, I'm exactly who I said I was. He tells them that after the Son of Man, which is a messianic description, that when he uses the term Son of Man, he's saying, I'm the Messiah. When he's lifted up, meaning when he's crucified and put to death, they would understand and then believe that Jesus is indeed exactly who he claimed to be. He is, as Paul says, the image of the invisible God. All things were created by him. And as I said before, these I am statements are not just a list of character traits. They are proof of Jesus' actual identity. And then verse 30 says that even as Jesus spoke, many put their faith in him. Knowing this, Jesus quickly put it to the test. And if you would pick it, we're going to pick it up. We're going to read just a few verses and then we'll move on from there. let start in verse 31 of chapter 8. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the father's presence and you do, not, you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. So in these verses, Jesus throws a fastball. He basically says, follow me and my commands Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And this really, really hit a nerve with these teachers, with these Pharisees. So now the lineage issue is back in play. And they play the genealogy card. Now, at work, I play the seniority card. So if I have to carry on another route and do overtime, I always walk over and say, I'm the most senior guy. Give me the best thing you got. And I don't want to carry any silly stuff. That's what they did with the genealogy card. They said, um, we're Abraham's descendants. You can't, you can't talk to us like that. We're from the seed of promise. And then they actually claimed to have never been slaves before. This is funny to me because for most of Israel's history, they were slaves to something. For 400 years, they were slaves in Egypt. Then they were slaves in Babylon and in Assyria before that. And then Persia and then Greece and then under Roman impression. They've been slaves as long as they lived. But they, they claim we've never been slaves to anyone. Jesus pounces on that slavery issue. He says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And who does that include? I said, who does that include? Everyone. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now in the first century, slavery is a really hot topic issue right now, especially in America. But in the first century, slavery was much different than what we as Americans see it as. See, people volunteered to be servants to pay off debts. It wasn't like you got taken and you were forced to do labor. People actually offered themselves to be servants to pay off debts. And after the seventh year, every seven years, the debts were washed away. And then at the 50th year would be the year of Jubilee, and all the debts would be washed away. So those people would be freed anyway. So it was really kind of a binding agreement. You're going to work for somebody to pay off a debt. As far as Israel was concerned, this didn't really count like the slavery they experienced in Egypt when they were building bricks and trying to build up foreign cities. But these particular Jews had no idea what slavery to foreign countries looked like. They didn't live in the time of the 400 years in Egypt. They didn't live in the time in Babylon. They didn't know any of this stuff. They just went by what other people said. These people were oppressed by Rome. They weren't actual slaves. They just had certain rules they had to follow. Jesus says that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is the only way... To true freedom. He said, like I pointed out already, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then Jesus confirms their lineage. He knows the genealogy, he's in the same line. He explains that everything he says comes straight from the Father, and then he sticks the jab. He told them that they do what they've heard from their Father. It's a stark contrast between his father and theirs. And they tighten their grip on that genealogy card. They say that Abraham is their father. But Jesus explains that if they were truly Abraham's children, they would do as Abraham did and believe in Jesus. Instead, they wanted to kill him. Another jab... He says again you are doing the things your own father does and they poke back at him they use the genealogy to prove that they are indeed children of God himself and that brings us to verse 42 I'm going to read again starting in verse 42 Jesus said to them if God were your father you would love me for I came from God and now I'm here I have not come on my own but he sent me why is my language not clear to you Because you are unable to hear what I say, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is the liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Jesus fires right back at their true identity. The true children of God love Jesus because of who he is, because of his lineage, because he is the Son of God. The Jews and countless people today cannot hear the truth because they belong to their father, the devil. These people hate Jesus and they want him dead. And the same thing is true today. How many of you have had a spiritual conversation with somebody and you get to the point where now it's time to talk about Jesus and who he is? Where does that conversation usually go? It's like riding Millennium Force at Cedar Point, you know. Just, phew, you're done. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to have that conversation because they're they're deaf to it. The devil is a lying murderer, and those that oppose Jesus—and I know this is harsh—are the same. Jesus says plainly that those who do not believe in him are not of God. They are children of the devil. Let's pick it back up in verse 48. The Jews answered him, "'Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed?' "'I'm not possessed by a demon,' said Jesus, "'but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. "'I am not seeking glory for myself, "'but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge.'" I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I... Am. at this they picked up stones to stone him but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds now the Jews pulled the race card on Jesus they say he's a Samaritan and he's demon possessed see Samaritans and Jews they hated each other they fought all the time they didn't speak to each other unless it was to insult one another. And Jesus tells them, very plainly, that he's not possessed by a demon. He only honors the Father who sent him. Wham! Another bold statement. He says, I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. The Jews point out that Abraham, is a, who is a man deemed to be righteous by his faith, they point out that he died and so did the prophets. Guess who killed the prophets? Those Jews that didn't believe them. They ask him if he believes that he is greater than Abraham and once again they ask him who he really thinks he is. The Jews cannot see because their eyes are blinded in disbelief. In chapter 14, as I mentioned before, Jesus boldly states that he is the only way to the Father. He says in chapter 11, he's the resurrection and the life. He says in 10, that he is the good shepherd and the gate for the sheep. He says in this very chapter that he is the light of the world. In chapter 6 he says he's the bread of life which is the only means of true sustenance. In chapter 15 he says he is the true vine which is our only source of life. Apart from him we can do nothing. And that's still not enough for them. So Jesus cuts to the chase and he lays it on them. In verse 56 he says, Your father Abraham rejoice at the thought of seeing me. He saw it and was glad. Now he's done it. They're they're off the rails now. He has sent them over the edge. They are so mad at him. All they can think is how much they want to kill him. And do you know why they want to kill him? What do these statements say? Why is it such a bad thing for Jesus to say, I am this or I am that? It cut him to the core because he said that he had seen Abraham. Jesus was nearly 33 years old when he died. This wasn't long before that. Abraham lived and died nearly 2,000 years before Jesus even walked the earth. And the Jews called him out on it. I want you to just for a second, just for fun. Picture that skeptic guy that you know, how if you tell him that you got a raise at work, he'll quickly challenge you on it and say, no, you didn't. Show me. Show me your check stub. You tell him you went to an amusement park yesterday, and he says, you didn't even have a ride to get there. The guy's kind of smug, right? Well, so were these Jews. They looked at Jesus. They said, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Ha, ha, ha. They look at him like he's crazy. Why? Because that's a pretty bold statement to see somebody that's lived 2,000 years before you were even here. But then he drops the hammer. Verse 58, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Now let me tell you, you got to back up to the Old Testament and to Genesis. To find out, how did Abraham see Jesus. And there's a lot of different scholars who will give you all kinds of different reasons as to what the angel of the Lord is in the Old Testament. I'm here to say, as Greg would say in in my most humble but accurate opinion, the angel of the Lord is what's referred to as a theophany. It's actually where Jesus Christ himself showed up on the scene as the angel of the Lord and spoke to the, the saints of old. So, in the story that we read about, about Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's about to be destroyed, three visitors come to Abraham, two of which are the angels of death. They're going to go and carry out the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But that third angel is the angel of the Lord. And that, my friends, is Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate. Before Abraham was born... I am. Why? Because Jesus is the creator of all things, and all things hold together in him. So, yes, Jesus saw Abraham. Abraham spoke with the angel of the Lord, and he was glad. And he's called a friend of God because he believed. and what happened when he said before Abraham was born I am what did they do they picked up stones to stone him what was one of the biggest reasons that Jewish people wanted to stone someone in the law blasphemy Jesus said I am this I am that and to them They understood what that claim meant. That claim meant, I am God. That's what Jesus was saying. That's why they were so upset. That's why they wanted to stone him. This is the culmination of every I am statement. When Jesus used those I am statements, he wasn't just describing his character traits. He's boldly proclaiming the covenant name of God as his own name. In Exodus 3:14, we find the story: Moses in front of the burning bush, and the bush is speaking to him. The angel of the Lord is speaking to Moses. And Moses is like scared to death. He doesn't know what to think. And he says, Go and you know, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses freaking out says, What do I say your name is? What who do I say is calling these people away from the Pharaoh? And God says, Tell them that I am sent you. I am is what's called an ego ami in Greek. It refers back to what we find in Hebrew is the very covenant name of God, which is Yahweh. Now, if you look in your English translation of the Bible, anytime you see the word Lord, and it's a capital L with little small caps, O-R-D, it's speaking of Adonai, which means God Almighty, which we sang about earlier today, but it replaces Yahweh. And the reason that it replaces Yahweh is because the Jews were afraid to speak that name in fear of mispronouncing it, because they believe that that will blaspheme God's name if they say it incorrectly. So I believe as, out of respect for that, that's why we don't find Yahweh in our scriptures that are in English. We see the names of God. Jehovah is a name that replaced Yahweh because there's no J in, in the Hebrew alphabet or in the, and, there's no, and, of course, there's no vowels in the Hebrew alphabet. So Jehovah is replaced for Yahweh. It's still the same name, but they're afraid to say it. They will never say Yahweh. Yahweh is like, picture it like this. Yah, you're breathing in. Yah. Way, you're breathing out. You're literally speaking the name of God every time you say that name. And I have to tell you that even though they're afraid to say it, it is okay to say it. Because Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus' name means. Yahweh saves. So you'll find if you, there's a a translation that they're working on right now that actually is changing the Lord back to Yahweh. So in case you're interested. But... It's the very name of God. So when Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am, he was literally saying, before Abraham was born, Yahweh. He was saying to those Jews, before Abraham was born, I'm God. And that's why they wanted to stone him. He was saying, I am absolutely the creator God of the universe. And that's exactly why people still deny him to this day. Because if Jesus is the God of the universe, then guess who has to answer to him? Myself and everyone included. We all have to answer to the God of the universe. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things and human flesh. He's the second person of the Trinity, and I know the Trinity can be kind of hard to understand, but Jesus Christ is the very picture of the invisible God. And if He indeed is the great I am, we're without excuse. We must repent. And we must turn from our wicked ways and be cleansed from all unrighteousness by the blood of the Lamb to the glory of God the Father forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father, I come to you right now. I pray, Lord, that we would know who Jesus is, that his claims were not empty claims, that he was there in the beginning. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God in the flesh. He laid down his body for us. And God, we praise you that you have given us clear and concise word of the identity of Jesus. I thank you, God, that you love us enough to draw each one of us into a relationship with you. I thank you that you've made the way. There's nothing we can do other than to hope in you. And, Father, we thank you that you love us enough to make that way. So, God, I pray that each person here today and online watching, Father, they would put their hope in Jesus Christ, that they would trust him, that they would believe in the one and only Son of God, and that they would surrender their lives to him, Father. I thank you, God, that you saved me and made me the man that I am now and are still molding me into the shape you want me to be. Father, I pray you do that to each person here today. You're the potter. We're the clay. Mold us how you will. Make us to be who you've called us to be. And, Father, be glorified throughout that whole process. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we talk about next steps. started studying, reading the Word of God. Or if you've been walking the walk for a long time and you're not studying the Word of God on a daily basis, I'm here to charge you. That's a sad state of affairs for your walk with God. And I pray that that changes this very day. And I pray that you'll get involved in a small group here in the church so you can be built up. And then through that, get involved in ministry of Jesus Christ, every single one of us. We're all missionaries to every place we're put here on this earth. We have an opportunity to serve the God of the universe through His Son, Jesus Christ by the power of God the Holy Spirit. We have an opportunity. Don't sit on that opportunity. Don't let your identity be in the prince of this world. Let your identity be found in the Prince of Peace.